work as we look to the Lord now in prayer. And Father, you know all the various dynamics of all the various people represented in these services and online this morning. And Father, what we're praying is that the Holy Spirit break in and do something so profound. We pray that this will be truly transforming. So Father, as we're asking of this, you know the needs that are here. You know the heart conditions of each and every one. Some are very close to you. And their hearts are warm to you. There can be some that are distant from you. Their hearts are very hardened toward you. Regardless of where they're at on that spectrum of discipleship, Father, you are the sovereign one who can break in at any given moment, in any given situation, with any given heart, and produce an immediate about face, a complete change, which is what we're praying in all these services and on the live stream as well. So, Father, what we're asking now is in a very profound way that once again you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, and that you would shape these wills. As again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. And we're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, a brilliant writer, a brilliant professor, is recounting the moment where he had been wrestling intensely with God. He describes the story this way. You must picture me alone in that room in London, night after night, feeling. Whenever my mind, I, I, I lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. For you see, that which I greatly feared had at least come upon me. For in 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And whenever I read those words from his book, Surprised by Joy, I think of Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus is an extraordinary man, has the equivalent of two PhDs, raised in a profound religious tradition of Judaism. But furthermore, he is so zealous for the Lord, he's going out of his way to persecute those whom he believes are opposed to the work of the Lord, the will of the Lord. The irony is... He thinks he's doing the work of the Lord. He thinks that he is in the will of the Lord as he persecutes those who belong to the Lord. 
known as Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as the Apostle Paul, he was adamantly opposed to any teaching with regard to Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. So much so that he officiated at the stoning of the man known in the book of Acts as Stephen. Stephen, who in the midst of his stoning was able to say in verse 56 of the 7th chapter, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Not seated. Standing. That is a statement of resurrection. And furthermore, towards the end of his execution, as they're stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And this is a testimony, even in the most severest cases, again, of the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. This is the sort of situation now that Saul of Tarsus is thrust in. He is officiating the stoning of a man, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now, Saul of Tarsus is not content with containing the gospel within the precincts of Jerusalem. No. Now he's going to go out of his way to get extradition papers for Jewish Christians who, because of his persecuting ways, have fled northward into the land of Syria, where they're located in the region of Damascus. Damascus, where there are tens of thousands of Jews to be found. And in AD 66, roughly 18,000 Jews were massacred. There was an intense and large Jewish population that had settled in that region of modern day, what we know as Syria. Well, now, Saul's not content. And anybody who thinks they're in the will of God, but in reality is opposing the will of God, anybody who thinks they're doing the work of God, but in reality is opposing the work of God, is not content. And so this extraordinary sense of discontent overtakes and hijacks his life. And so now he wants to arrest the Jewish Christians. God is about to arrest Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, born once, was formed by God. Saul of Tarsus, to be born again, transformed by God. So what I want to do with you now is to explore transformation this morning. Using C.S. Lewis's description of self as an example, what I want to do is to draw out two significant aspects of transformation that are found in these 19 verses and see how they relate to our own life experiences. Let's check them out. First is found in verse 1 through 9, that as you and I, as we consider how God transforms lives, I want to begin with you this morning by noting here the sovereign grace provided by God. The sovereign grace provided by God. Now, notice, we've had this respite in chapter 8, haven't we? 
Philip has had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. One-on-ones are going to be extraordinarily avail important, not only in, in Acts, but in your life, because you never know where they're going to take you. In Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch would take the gospel back to the African continent. And because of one-on-one -on, -one on the road of Gaza, he would begin to share the gospel in the courts of Candace, leader of the Ethiopians, modern-day Sudan. A one-on-one is going to happen here in this passage as well. So there's been tranquility, but once again we pick it up, and here we have but Saul. Not merely on Saul, but Saul. And notice the wording here. The physician, Luke, he's a brilliant writer. He describes it as still breathing. He's exhaling threats and murder. <coughs> and notice that he's doing this against the disciples of the Lord. Disciple carries with it the idea of one who is being taught by, under the instruction of. And so these are individuals that are under the instruction of the word of God via the teachings of the apostles. Well, now, they might be removed geographically, but they're close to God spiritually, and, well, Saul wants to do something about that, you see. He's religious, he's zealous, and he's breathing this stuff, not merely thinking this stuff. And so he's going to go to the high priest, the high priest. Uh, the high priest has been trying to squelch the rumors with regard to the supposed resurrection of Jesus Christ. The high priest, Caiaphas' house, the ones that overseen the execution of Jesus Christ. The ones who were going out of their way to buy off, pay off those that had proclaimed that the tomb was empty. But now, what do you do? when the word is out of the precincts of Jerusalem and is making its way northward, even into the synagogues of Damascus. Well, he goes to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. In other words, he wants to have authorized extradition letters so that if he found any belonging to the way, you see, if he found any belonging to the way, and notice how inclusive he is, men or women, that's extraordinary in that time period, he might have them bound and return to, to Jerusalem. Now, mark in your text, or if you're using a device, either way, mark the wording, the way. This title was used five times in the book of Acts. And it's bearing, it's rooting, it's founding, is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where Isaiah, eight centuries prior to Jesus, prophesied that John the Baptist would be given this task of preparing the way of the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Making straight. Now, that word's going to come back to haunt us in this passage. A desert. In the desert, a highway for our God. The early believers were known as people of the way, both Jew and Gentile. What it means then is that they are claiming that Jesus Christ is the exclusive way to the Father 
It is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other way. And so now there is exclusivity here. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know that you are not merely talking about a way, but rather you have committed your life to one who has said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So now five times what you will find in the book of Acts is a descriptive of the followers of Christ before they were known as Christians, they were known as the way of Yeshua. Yeshua, the name for Jesus. The way. People of the way. And so now, he's, he's on to it. He knows about them. And so he's going to make his way to the synagogues in, in Damascus. And as the gospel is going forth because of persecution... Simultaneously, persecutions going forth because of the gospel. Well, here's his purpose. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. But now you're up to verse 3, aren't you? And I want you to see how brilliant Luke is as a writer. I don't know where he learned this in medical school, to be honest with you. The skill of writing. Because in verse 3, you and I are told, as he went on his way. Oh, is that good? He's out to persecute those who are of the way as he goes on his way. That old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way you see, which they play somewhere along, somewhere in the midst of a New York Yankees ball game, you see. Well, no. As he went on his way, I want you to see the contrast there. He approached Damascus. Now, Damascus is to Jerusalem, distance-wise, what Chicago is to basically Sheboygan County. So talking about 150 miles would take him roughly about a week. This is a restless spirit. He's not content with them being settled, resettled in Damascus. No, he's going to go out of his way to bring them back, extradition papers, to Jerusalem. So there you have it, and... In verse 3, we're told there's this suddenness. There's this immediacy. There is something dramatic here. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. Now, later, the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, would utilize the metaphor of light to describe salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It would be close to his heart. Metaphorically there, but physically here, there's this suddenness of light from heaven and shown around him, all the more dramatic because this is the midday time period when the light would be shining brightly. So God's light, the Shekinah light, outshines the midday light 
falling to the ground. You're at verse 4. He heard a voice, which now tells you and tells me that God is utilizing a combination of the visual, light, and the verbal voice. Dual emphasis in order to get this person's attention. Now, I pause there to say, if there's anybody in your extended circle of relationships that is still distant from God, in your prayer, pray for some form of dual emphasis upon their lives. What God is about to do now is to provide what I will call the interruption of grace. Has God ever interrupted your life? You were headed in one direction. You were doing it your way. Saul's doing it his way. And all of a sudden, there's this extraordinary interruption. Maybe it felt bad. Maybe the circumstances are absolutely terrible. Unmistakable. Totally remarkable. None of your own doing. Now ask yourself, why did God permit it? Maybe it was his permissive will. Maybe it was his directive will. Duo aspect, voice and light, saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now, duo aspect, voice and light, dual name mentioning, Saul, Saul. This gets the attention. God knows your name. But furthermore now, what God will do is that he poses this profound question because he knows, he knows what Saul's up to. Why are you persecuting me? Now let's pause here. Think about what's here. Maybe go back to verse 4. Get our bearings. I think we need a map, don't you? I think we do. And so uh, let's get our bearings here and 115 miles. Think Sheboygan County upward to, or downward I should say to Chicago, or in this case Jerusalem upward here. Uh, you're making your way to Damascus. I was watching a YouTube the other night, extraordinary YouTube, about nine minutes in length. Um, This woman's vlogging, and she's recording her experience. Somehow, someway, she got in to Syria uh, via Lebanon and is describing Damascus. It's worth your time checking out this afternoon if you've got a few minutes. Now, here's Saul, and he's making way, his way up around the Sea of Galilee, and he's heading northward towards Damascus, modern-day Syria. We need another perspective. Here's your road sign. If you're planning to get there, you're going to get stopped along the way, I can guarantee you. I've been close to that region, and there's your signs. They've got to do it in English for you and me. But uh, if you read Arabic, you've got some Arabic there and other things as well to capture your attention. You're on the road to Damascus. This is a sense of the way this war-torn region looks today. Back to the text. So now as you're back to the text, what I want you to see here is that here is, here is Saul. 
and he is hearing his name mentioned not once but twice. And he is being confronted not once but simultaneously, uh, verbal as well as visual, in the form of this serious question that will also be addressed not once but twice. Why are you persecuting me? Now, by saying that, there's a subtlety here that what Jesus Christ is saying, I'm alive. Furthermore, what he's saying here is that the one who said, I am the way, identifies with the people of the way, and the people of the way identify with the one who is the way, which is something that Sundar Singh would have to come to grips with. He was raised in India, you see. Reading from his biographical sketch in a Sikh family, but through his mother, had come to appreciate various religious scriptures, including the Quran. But... The Bible, however, was not on his reading list. He hated the Bible, not because he had read it and studied it, but rather because he hated Christians. For you see, their religion was not part of his heritage. And so in an effort to express his outrage for their presence in his country of India, well, he joined with others in a Bible-burning ceremony in the village square. But, Burning the Bible was an outrage against God, as Sundar learned through a vision. Quote, Though I thought I had done a, a good deed in burning the gospel, yet my unrest of heart increased, not decreased. Ironies. On the third day, when I felt that I could bear it no longer, I got up at three in the morning and after bathing, prayed that if there was a God at all, he would reveal himself to me, show me the way of salvation, the way of salvation. I firmly made up my mind that if this prayer was not answered, I would before daylight go down to the railway, place my head on the line before the incoming train. I remained till about half past four, praying, waiting, expecting to see Krishna or Buddha or some other avatar of the Hindu religion, they didn't appear. But rather, a light was shining in the room. I opened the door to see where it came from. It was dark outside. I turned inside, and the light increased in intensity and took the form of a globe of light above the ground, and in this light there appeared not the form I had expected, but the living Christ whom I had counted as dead. To all eternity I shall never forget his glorious loving face, nor the few words which he spoke, Why do you persecute me? See? I've died on the cross for you and for the whole world. These words burned into my heart as by lightning I fell to the ground before him. My heart was filled with inexpressible joy and peace, and my whole life was entirely changed. And Zudendar Singh became a profound evangelist, continent of India, leading countless people to Jesus Christ. Well, no. What are you going to do? 
Well, now God asks a question. Second member of the Trinity poses the question, why are you persecuting me? And so, how does Saul answer the question? Well, he answers the question with a question. Who are you, Lord? Which carries with it the idea of something more than referring to him as sir, but something less than acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ over his life. Notice what Jesus says. I am Jesus. Everybody's being identified here. I am Jesus, not I was Jesus. But then for emphasis, because we're talking dualities, whom you are persecuting once again. But he doesn't leave him there, does he? And God doesn't leave us where we were. He wants us to go and do something with what has taken place when sovereign grace breaks in. Has grace broken into your life? He's been commissioned. But rise. Enter the city. You'll be told what you are to do. Pause. Just like with Philip. Now here. He's not given exhaustive information all at once. He's simply given sufficient information. And you'll have to now take the next step. And this happens with you and me continuously. We would like to have the full ball of wax, don't we? Tell me everything about what I'm getting myself into. And God gives you not exhaustive information. God gives you sufficient information. And then you have to take the next step as you make your way forward. Is that where you're at in life? You would like tomorrow to be revealed in your today. He wants you to live for him today and he'll reveal more for you tomorrow. Don't ask me to repeat that. I have no idea what I just said. <laughs> so in verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They're only given one of the two. You see, they heard, they stood, stood speeching, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, this is one bad case of cataracts, I want you to know. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He went to Damascus wanting to arrest Christian Jews. He enters Damascus arrested by Jesus. And for three days, ironies, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. My father, who was raised in an orphanage, whenever his, his siblings would get together years ago, uh, an annual type reunion or whatever, they're, they're Danish, and they love the word Hugo. And so late at night, um, they'd start lighting their Danish candles. And they'd be sitting around recalling days in the orphanage and days growing up. Now they're scattered around the world. Many have passed away now, of course. But there was one story that always stood out when I was young. 
is about the head of a London orphanage. He was approached by this uh, boy. He was dirty, ragged. He wanted admission into the orphanage. And the headmaster said, I don't know you. Who are you? What have you to recommend? Who do you have to recommend? What have you to recommend you? I jotted this down that the boy held up his ragged coat and said, Sir, if you please, I thought these were all, these would be all that I needed to recommend me. And with that, the boy was brought into the orphanage. There's this classic song, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is grace. You don't earn it. It's grace. You don't deserve it. Saul could have said, look at all that I've achieved religiously. Look at all that I've achieved academically. But then Chuck Colson would say, as he summarized his life in loving God, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-con. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. And so as that former White House official made his way to prison, introduced to grace, here now we find likewise Saul of Tarsus making his way into Damascus. Not on his terms, but on God's terms. Damascus. Another picture of Damascus appears on the screen at this point. Ponder it. Look at it. Check out that YouTube that I described a little bit earlier. Think about what God was doing there. One of their traditions in Damascus cafes is for someone who is known as the storyteller in the community to take a seat on a throne in the cafe, a throne, with a sword in his hand. He wields the throne as he tells the great stories. And they're not going to watch TV. They're not going to be checking out the Packers. They're going to be all gathered in what's usually a smoke-filled cafe, and they're taking in the rich stories. And I've been praying over the course of these days, bring the greatest story into the cafes. Bring the story of the one who died and rose again into the collection of the people. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Now you see sovereign grace in verses 1 through verse 9. You see how God not merely forms life, that's the first birth, but transforms life, that's the second birth. And as you and I, as we consider how God transforms lives, we are not only noting the sovereign grace God provided by God in 1 through 9, but furthermore, the strategic guidance directed by God in 10 through 19. Sovereign grace, strategic guidance. Pick it up and check it out now. You're up to verse 10. Now, I love that word. God is so contemporary. Now. Now there was a disciple at Damascus irony. For you see, the Jewish Christians that were in 
Jerusalem fled the persecution overseen by Saul. And now they're in places such as Damascus. And so now there's this disciple in Damascus. And this disciple in Damascus, his name is Ananias. Notice now what comes next. God has spoken to Saul, and now God is about to speak to Ananias. God gave a vision to Saul, and now God gives a vision to Ananias. He's multitasking. And so now he have it. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Now he used Saul's name twice. Evidently that's what was needed. If he used my name, he would probably be repeating it again and again and again. You see, I'm a little dull. But Ananias only took once. It took. Ananias, look what comes next. He said, here I am, Lord. Now, draw a line from verse 10 back to verse 5. Because in the vision given to Saul, Saul posed the question, Who are you, Lord? But in verse 10, Ananias provides the statement, Here I am, Lord. You see. No. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man. A man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, not P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. And furthermore, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, and Ananias is saying to himself, why did you name me? Why did you picture me in Saul's mind? Why did you give him the visual? Just like Job in the Old Testament must have been wondering, why me, Lord? Why did you raise my name up in that courtroom, that cosmic scene where everybody was reporting in and the evil one was looking for a way and to pry people away from God. Well, he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I can almost hear him exhale. I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem 150 miles away, and now he's making his way here. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He's got, he's got info, Ananias did. Makes me wonder, was Ananias at the top of the list that Saul possessed to extradite people back to Jerusalem, that God would choose Ananias as first? Well, now, he wants him to go to Straight Street, so we need to get a sense of Straight Street. So here's a picture on the screen of Straight Street. Uh, it happens, it, we can see it uh, now. We can see the way it looks in terms of an entrance into the region. So another picture of Straight Street that we can also provide, if possible, if it appears on the screen. 
Well, if not, we continue on because I want you to see here that the Lord said to him, go, in verse 15, go. For he's a chosen instrument of mine. Now, what I want you to see is what comes next here. He is meant to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Twice the emphasis upon the word name. And you say to yourself, you know, that's the case all throughout the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there you have it in Acts chapter 4 as well. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so now here's Ananias, and he's being told at this point, I want you to make your way straight street, still found today in Damascus. Back to the text. And so you're back to the text at this point. And as you're back to the text, what we see here is that Ananias is about to make his move. He's pondering now the mission that he's being given one-on-one -on -one with Saul, but he's also pondering the mission that Saul's about to be given to the nations. So you're up to verse 17. Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, is this good? He said, Brother Saul, Now, what does that say to you? We're family. We're family. What God is doing at this point, he's creating a sense of convergence between Ananias and Saul. And he's taking the persecution that Saul has overseen and officiated as a means of getting the gospel out into Syria and now getting Saul to Syria where he is about to get experience one-on-one -on -one follow-up with the man he was probably first on his list to incarcerate, to bring back, you see, to Jerusalem, Ananias. Convergence. You ever seen how God produces convergence in your life? It might be the convergence of events, good or bad. Convergence of experiences, good or bad. Convergence of people, relationships, good or bad. Encounters that you could never have anticipated in your life. Convergence. And you wonder, what was that all about? If you and I, if we're flying into Mitchell or flying into O'Hare, this hits me every time when I'm flying in one of those two. Whenever I'm flying into a, a major airport, you see, I'm always struck by the highway systems in the descent. Highways are lit up, and I see how everything intersects. When you're at ground level, you don't see all the intersections. But when you've got a bit of altitude in your life experience, you're able to see how convergence happens, and you say, oh, that's why. You see, what the Bible does for you is that through the working of the Holy Spirit, God is providing you with a sense of convergence, bringing people in and out of your life, health issues in and out of your life, situations you might have not approached 
on your own, in and out of your life. And so now, there's convergence here. Ananias is going to make himself vulnerable. The population of the believers in the area might be wondering, is this a conspiracy? Is this a ploy? Are we about to get used? Are they going to take our leader Ananias and then extradite him back to Jerusalem? What's next? High risk. Grace is high risk, you know. But when you're committed to the combination of sovereign God, sovereign grace, and strategic guidance, there's going to be risks worth taking. And because he puts his hands upon him, Brother Saul tells him that God has sent me so that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, rose, was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened, convergence. God producing any convergence in your life? These are not accidents in time, we've said. These are appointments in time. And Corey Tenboom came to understand that. When she was in Munich, after World War II had come to an end, she, the one who had endured hardship in a concentration camp, was sharing the grace of God in a setting when, lo and behold, one of her captors, one of her captors was out in the audience. And at the end of her talk, approached her to greet her. Fine message for all line. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are forgiven. I remembered him. The leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. Fraulein, you, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a god there. Oh, he, does, he doesn't remember me. But Fraulein, since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And he extended his hand. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed always as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I would ever have to do. But I knew what God's grace is all about. I had experienced the forgiveness of my sins. But still, still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of my heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you're going to have to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into joint hands, and then healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother.
with my whole heart. We were one. And this is what a transformed life is all about. You've encountered sovereign grace, continuously moving forward with strategic guidance because you're not merely formed. If you're born again, you're transformed. And God is at work in your life. Let's stand together. And so now, Father, we're thanking you for the God who not merely forms within the womb, but he transforms through the renewing of the spirit within the heart. You take the inner life of the man or the woman and you create and recreate. And from old creation people, we become new creation people. So, Father, for any of these services this morning, as well as for those that will watch on YouTube or those with the live stream, I'm praying right now that you will speak to hearts. There's someone that right now needs to become a brother, needs to be called a sister, needs to become part of the family. Interrupt their life now. Break in. Bring a sense of convergence with someone else that loves Jesus. And allow them to see how grace and guidance come under the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And for this, Father, we're going to give you now all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.